in week three of our series, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And if you missed the last two, can I encourage you to catch those online? The usual spaces, Spotify, iTunes, um, and on our website. And the past two weeks in particular, Jason has been talking about um, the whole idea that our, that our lives are made up of more than what's on the surface. And I think most of us can identify to that. Tom and Jason had a wee bit of a back and forth last week about the percentages. Tom said 66% beneath the surface. Jason said 90%. Anyway, either way, rather large part beneath the surface, and the smaller part of our lives are actually visible on the top for everyone to see. The thing about that I find in my life is this hidden part under my life or in the internal part of my life isn't always just hidden to other people. Very often it's hidden to me as well. I don't know if you, if you are aware of that yourselves in your own life. And very often I become aware of the stuff that's hidden underneath the surface in the interior of my life, usually when something not so good happens or I face a challenge or something like that. And normally that's when I start to really discover what's going on underneath the surface of my life. And a huge part of what lies underneath our lives or is underneath the surface, is our past. We don't switch off. Sometimes as soon as we start talking about our past, there's a, there's a reaction in us, isn't there? There's like, oh no, not again. Are we, are we going to have to go there again? Are we going to have to talk about our past again? Can we not just move on? Can we not just move forward? But here's something you're going to hear me saying today a couple of times, and it's we need to look back if we're going to move forward. You can't really move forward in health, if you don't, if you're not prepared to look back. Um, so what's stopping us from looking back? <clears throat> well, for some of us, it might be that it's just too painful. That the things that have been done to you, the things that you've done to yourself are just too painful to go back and look at. And you're just like, you know what? I don't want to go there. You've buried them deep inside. You're like, the last thing I want to do is to go back and look at that awful pain from my past. Or for some of you, maybe... You're more like this, and you're like, do you know what? I'm just not into all that navel grazing. Gazing, not grazing. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> that would mean putting chips in your, no, in your belly button. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, but navel gazing. Some of us don't want a navel gaze. Some of us are like, I don't want to be one of those people who just talks about themselves and talks about their past all the time. And I don't want to do that, so we just kind of go, no, I don't want that to be me. But... <clears throat> For some of us as well, we're just like, I don't want to go back to my past and start blaming everyone or start having to dig up stuff that's, that's been left well alone. But here's the thing. Whether our past is good or bad, and usually our lives are made up of both, aren't they? Usually our lives are made up of good things in our past, healthy things as well as not so good things in our past. But whether they're good or bad, inevitably they will catch up with us whether we like it or not. Isn't that true? Have you ever found that? That no matter how hard you try to run away from your past, no matter how, hard, how much distance you try to put between yourself and it, very often it seems to catch up. And usually it trips us up. It just doesn't catch us up. It's a bit more like a rugby tackle. It actually completely takes us down and takes us off our feet. A huge part of our past and most of our lives is shaped around our family of origin. What I mean by that is the family that you and I grew up in. 
And that is the most powerful system that has shaped and continues to influence the person you are today. Now, for those of us who grew up in a healthy home and and feeling loved and in a home that was reasonably stable and healthy and whole, which is hopefully the most of us here, right? Sometimes the problem with that is it can take us way longer to be willing to identify behaviors and ways of relating in our lives that have got to do with our family. You know what I mean? So if you grew up in a in a very obviously dysfunctional family, or you grew up in a very obviously broken, damaged family, then it's really easy to see and identify the problems, isn't it? It's really easy to see and go, I'm, I'm never doing that. I'm not going to be like that. You, you, you already decide that that's not how I'm going to be. But for those of us, and for probably most of us here, who have grown up in a stable home, relatively stable, not perfect, nobody's family's perfect, but have grown up in a stable environment, and a loving environment, it can be so much more difficult for us to identify the things in our families, patterns than our families that aren't healthy. You see, we all get into the comparison trap, don't we? Or I do. I tend to look and go, well, do you know, you know, my family's not perfect, but like, compared to other people's families, it's not that bad. So we just sort of put it down to the conclusion, well, do you know, I'm all right. I don't need to do that. That, that. that whole looking back and dealing with your past and working out your family of origin and dealing with things, that's more for, for really, really, really broken people. But actually, I'm all right. I'm okay. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not too bad. Here's the truth. Every family is damaged. Every family is damaged. I find that very difficult to say as a daughter, but I find it way more difficult to say as a mother. I want to say it again. Every family is damaged. Everyone, and and even at our very, very best, at our very best attempt, we are broken and damaged. And we are broken and damaged because of Adam and Eve. We are descendants of Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just sin for themselves. They didn't just sin and their sin had consequences for their life. In that moment where they rejected what God had for them, when they rejected this wonderful paradise creation, this um, beyond our comprehension of how perfect Eden actually was, when they rejected all of that and decided that they wanted to go out on their own and not be under the lordship and the kingship of God, then everything broke. Everything broke. You only have to look around, don't you? You only have to look around in our own streets, in our own where we live, never mind turn on the news globally to see how broken this world is. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we are broken. We are broken. And Adam and Eve, the first thing they did was they tried to protect themselves. And you can see this, this protecting and that Jesus, or God comes and he comes to walk with them in the cool of the day like he always did. And I, that's one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. I have this beautiful picture of the father just walking through this paradise and coming to walk with them in the cool of the day. And in that phrase, we see a father, we see a God who created us for relationship and community. That's why he he created all of this. 
not just us as people, but that's why he created the entire cosmos, was so that he could have relationship with us. And we see that straight away, as soon as sin enters the world, Adam and Eve, all of a sudden there's this protecting start, and it's about controlling, fixing, fear, withdrawal, ignoring, denying, pacifying, loneliness, anxiety, frustration, resentment, blaming, and more. <clears throat> and the pattern of protecting can run through generations. Have you ever um, looked at your brother, your sister, or somebody else in your family and went, you're stingy like Uncle Albert? You ever done that? <laughs> or you have a temper on you like great grand Archie? We do it, don't we? It's like we identify and we see traits coming down through the generations and we're like, and we don't always say it in a nice way, do we? Like, let's be honest. We're not trying to help the person that we're saying it to to deal with their stuff. We're really having a go. We're like, you're just like Earl Archie. Hmm. Do you know, that's what we do. I was talking to someone this week, and I won't name them, but they were saying that they get all their mother's ailments. And that, that their sister gets none of them, but they get all the ailments. Anyone else agree with that? Iris is nodding. She must be the same. So anyway, turn with me to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis for a lot of this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, why don't you grab one? Um, hands up who wants a Bible. I'll go Charnel, my willing assistant. <clears throat> Thank you. So if you turn to Genesis 12, first of all, and we're going to look at the life, a family line that you all, most of you have probably heard of before. So tell me when you're there at Genesis 12. You're there, great. Genesis is easy. First book of the Bible, it's easy to find. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So we find this man called Abram, who will soon become Abraham. So don't get confused later on in Genesis when we're talking about Abraham. It's exactly the same person. God called Abram, and he was called to be a blessing. So he said, you're going to be a blessing, your people are going to be a blessing, and your people are going to bless, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And Abram went as God had told him. This was a big deal. So he left behind his family, his job, his career, all his livelihood, everything he knew to follow God's call. That is quite an heroic thing to do, isn't it? Have any of you ever left? Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you have left country, people, whatever, to come and live here. Lots of people in Dungannon, where we live, have done just that very thing. And it is a big thing to do. It is a huge thing to leave your family, your culture, everything behind and come and live in a different place. And this is exactly what Abram did. And he did it because he felt God asked him to. He obeyed and he went. However, this is a big dramatic however. And he, capitals, dun, 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 however. It did not mean that Abraham, Abram had it all together. Slip down to verse 10 in the same chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, 
I know what a beautiful woman you are. Sounds like a charmer. Where do you hear the next bit? When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Abraham tells his wife, Abraham tells his life to, wife to lie to Pharaoh, to put her neck on the line, so that number one, he would be safe. No real talk about her being safe in this. Number two, so that he can make lots of money. So Abraham, this man who followed God's call, who obeyed, was incredibly brave, courageous, obedient, all those things. He is also, as well as being a cunning, shrewd entrepreneur, he is a lion, sexist, horrible husband to his wife, Sarah. I'm not going to make it all look good in this story because it's not good, is it? He says, you tell them that, that you're my sister so that I'll be safe. Skip forward to Genesis 20, verses 1 to 3. Just a few pages over. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sur. For a while he stayed, for a while he stayed in Gera. And there Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Amalek, king of Gera, went, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Here we find Abraham, and what is he doing? The exact same thing again. The exact same thing. He did not learn from the first time. There is a deep, deep-seated pattern of lying in Abraham's life. And he's like, oh, that worked the last time. Let's do that again. But this time, God intervened. And God told Abimelech, he says, who says, I haven't touched her. So he says to God, no, I haven't touched this woman. I, I didn't know what was going on, but I, I didn't touch her. She's not, she, I haven't made her my wife um, in the biblical sense. So I haven't touched her. So then he asked Abraham to come and he says, come, take away your wife, Sarah. God is going to punish me greatly because of your lies, because of what you have done. Take your wife and go. And not only does he say, take your wife and go, he gives him a whole pile of money and he leaves. This is the second time that Abraham lies and uses Sarah for his own gain. It looks to me like lying is an ongoing inset habitual sin in Abraham's life. Fast forward, Abraham sleeps with his wife's slave, has a son with her called Ishmael, rather than waiting for Isaac, the son promised to him. Abraham's character is flawed, and as a result, two of the sons, Ishmael and Isaac, are opposed to one another their whole lives, and there is deep, deep division in their family. Now, for the sake of this story, we're going to follow the line of Isaac. Genesis 26, skip across to Genesis 26. So here we have the son of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Yep, you can sing that while you're waiting for Genesis 26. Okay, Genesis 26. Here we find Isaac. <clears throat> we find him in Genesis 26. He is with the same king, Abimelech. The same scenario, there's another fam famine. 
<clears throat> and we begin this account with God in the verses 2 to 5 and 26. God reiterates the promises that he gave to Abraham that have now been passed on to Isaac, right? Descendants, God says, I've promised you descendants, lands, blessings on your nation so that your nation will be a blessing to all nations. So the, the promise, the blessings are, are continuing down the line to Isaac. And then we find here in verse 7, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Like father, like son. Because he was afraid as well to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you tell me she's your sister? And Isaac answered, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Abraham passed down the blessing, but Abraham also passed down the sin. We see this habitual lion. Now let's go to Genesis 27. You're getting a good wee flip through Genesis today. Um, Genesis 27. Jacob has two sons. No, Isaac has two sons. Jacob and Esau. Isaac has two sons. So we have Abraham is the granddad. Isaac is the dad. Jacob is now the grandson, and they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And there is fierce rivalry between them. Any of you got siblings? Most of you probably. Any, it may be easier. Hands up the only children in the room. Oh, just me. Feel sorry for me. <laughs> Doesn't always feel that way. <laughs> Any sibling rivalry in all your houses, when you, especially when you were growing up? No, not. Still? Still, as you know that you're adults? Any sibling, any sibling rivalry? Not that you're going to admit this morning. But there was fierce rivalry between these two. Jacob was filled with jealousy because Esau was his father's favorite. So in the end, Jacob decides, you know what, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of Esau always being the favorite. All these years, always Esau, Esau, Esau. He's always the favorite. He gets everything. He's the favorite. <clears throat> and I've had enough of this. So his father, um, is Isaac, is dying, basically. He's elderly. <clears throat> He's blind. And Jacob and his mom come up with this whole scheme to deceive their father. They're going to deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. Esau was the eldest. The blessing was, it was due to him, with the way that the system worked then, the eldest son, still quite similar in some systems, that he would get the blessing. And this wasn't just... There would, also be, there would also be an inheritance as well for Jacob, but it wouldn't be as much. Usually, I think, the elder son got twice as much as the next sibling got. But he went about it in such a sneaky way. You can read the story in Genesis 27. For sake of time, I'm not going to go into it. But anyway, he steals the inheritance from his brother. He steals it from him. And Esau finds out, and he steals the inheritance. And it's not just um, a, pr a practical, physical inheritance of money and land and flocks and all that sort of thing. But he steals the spiritual inheritance as well. 
this blessing that's been passed down, father to son and father to son, he steals that from Esau. Esau finds out and he is really mad. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how angry you would be knowing that your brother had deceived you, but not only deceived you, deceived your father and then had done you out of your inheritance? So he, Esau, when he finds out, says, I am going to murder you. If I ever set eyes on you again, Jacob, I am going to kill you. You better stay out of my way the rest of our lives because I am going to kill you if I see him again. And Jacob continues, you can see in the life of Jacob as you read on through his life, he continues this life of lying and he becomes almost like a con man. And it feels like the sin is getting worse, isn't it? It feels like the sin of lying and deception is actually getting worse from Abraham down to Isaac and now to Jacob. Now we come to Jacob's family, Genesis 37. Still with me, okay? Great. Genesis 37. We find the family of Jacob, and he has 12 sons, and he has continued the sibling rivalry by also having favorites. You just see it, can't you? It's so easy to see it in other people's lives, isn't it, always? So easy to see these things in other people's lives. So he continues, he has favorites, and Joseph is one of his favorites. And not only is he content enough just to, like, be obviously that Joseph is his favorite. He makes him a coat to make it stand out even more. And Joseph doesn't really try to hide it. You can imagine him swanning around in his coat, can't you? Look at my coat. Daddy got me that because I'm his favorite. Well, Joseph got more than he bargained for. The other thing we find out about Jacob is that Jacob is a full-on polygamist. He has two wives two slaves that he takes his wives that are in effect sex slaves who has 12 sons and one daughter. We see the sin of favoritism and unfairness. Abraham favors Isaac over Ishmael. Eventually this leaves Ishmael out of the family permanently and the world is still feeling the effect of the feud between Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac favors Esau over Jacob, Jacob favors, favors Joseph and Benjamin over his other sons, and in the end, it just goes from one generation to the other. So what do they do? The family, the, the brothers, what do they do? They decide that they are going to get rid of Joseph. They have had enough of this favoritism, so they decide one day that they're just going to kill him, but then they didn't. One of the other brothers speaks up and says, let's not kill him, instead let's sell him as a slave into Egypt, which really was probably hopefully going to put Joseph's death in someone else's hands instead of their own, really. It wasn't really that they were doing a big favor. They were just kind of hoping if we sell him off, then we won't know what happens to him, and hopefully they'll kill him, and then we'll not have to deal with it ourselves. And they come back with the famous coat covered in blood, and they lie to their father's face, and they say that he must be dead. We found this cloak. It's covered in blood. Someone must have killed him. We keep seeing these patterns of sin emerge in the family of Abraham. The first one we see is the sin of lying, isn't it? Lying. Abraham lies about Sarah, Isaac lies about Rebekah, Jacob lies to Isaac and all over the place. And then Jacob's sons lie to him at the expense of Joseph, who had to live with the consequence of those lies for years. We see the sin of misogyny and sexual addiction. Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant and treats her essentially like a sex slave. Then we find, it skips a generation, then we find Jacob, grandson Jacob, who is a full-on polygamist, as I said. Twelve sons, one daughter with four wives. And we see the sin of favoritism. 
and go in fairness. And we see this, that the sin just keeps going from generation to generation to generation. Turn with me now to Exodus 20. Verses 1 to 6. And this is the, the account of the Ten Commandments. These are, these are, this is the law that God gave Moses up on the Mount Sinai. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God, I want you to listen to this, but this is a really important. God is not saying that the great-great-grandchildren are punished for the sins of the great-great-grandparents, right? That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that generational sin is a real thing. That sin is passed down from generation to generation. It's like we have a bent towards it. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like in families, you see it. It's like I said, great-great-uncle Archie was a miser. And, and you see that running down through families. Also what God is saying is some sins have consequences that last for generations. Unfaithfulness that leads to a divorce in a family maybe 20 years ago. The effect that that has on the children and the grandchildren is still being felt 20, 30 years down the line. The other thing that we see in these verses in Exodus is on the scale of God's mercy and judgment, God's mercy wins every time. God's mercy wins every time. Three or four generations for the sin, but a thousand for the blessings. God is a God of justice, 100% yes, but his heart is to show mercy to us. If we were to have scales of justice and mercy with God, then you can see through scriptures, not just in this verse, but time and time again, that God weighs heavy on mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice, over judgment every time. And the punishment is not that we are punished for our parents' sin, but that the odds are that your grandfather or father's sin lives on in you. And because God is a God of justice, the consequences of the sin for your life is the same as for your parents'. Our families of origin have a massive bearing on who we are today, good or bad. We carry good and bad into our lives. Abraham was an outstanding man in so many ways, but he still passed on the sins of lying, of sexual addiction and favoritism onto his family, and it had an absolutely devastating impact. You can see that through the stories. We, too, carry inheritance we carry an inheritance of blessing. But we also carry generational sin. The important thing for us this morning, this all feels a bit heavy, is that we have to look back so that we can look forward. We look back so we can look forward. God can redeem all of our stories. God can redeem all of our lives. You see, he comes along, God comes along in our lives and he comes right into the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our past, in the midst of our pain. And he comes along and he begins to work through and he does a new thing in our lives. Only God can take the, the pain and the hardship in our lives and turn it into something good. 
Only God can do that. Only God can do that in our lives. But very often, he doesn't erase our past. He works in it. He works through it. It'd be so much easier if he did, wouldn't it? It'd be so much easier if God could just come along and just wipe it all out, just like he does with our sin. He wipes out our sin. It's, it's removed from us as far as the east is from the west, but he doesn't remove our past from us because he wants us to be renewed and redeemed through it. He wants to work in it to bring us through it the other side. And he wants us to do it because he knows that if we don't deal with our past, if we don't deal with the things that we have carried with us from our families of origin, from the things that we have done ourselves in our past, then it's going to have an impact on our relationships and all the relationships around us. It's going to impact your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, with your friends, with your siblings, with all of our families. And it's going to have an impact in church. We are all made up. The church is made up of individual people, every single one of us. And what we bring to this family, we bring often from our family of origin. But the good news is, this is a whole brand new family of God. And that's not what God wants us to do. He doesn't want us to bring all that stuff from our family of origin into this brand new family. He wants this family to be full of the things of the Spirit. He wants it to be full of gentleness, of self-control, of kindness, of love, of forgiveness, and all those things. But for us to get to that place, for us to be that way with each other, we need to deal with the other stuff. Does that make sense? So how do we get emotionally healthy? How do we break the power of the past? Number one, we see it. We have to do the, the, the courageous, brave work of looking at it. That's the hard part. The easy part is to keep it buried. Trust me, I know. I know how easy it is. Let's just keep it all in. Let's keep it buried. For at all costs, let's keep a lid on. Don't, and if we feel the wee lid starting to pop up, it's like everything we can do to put that lid back on again, stand on it, put everything on it. And we're going, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. The bravest thing we can do is we take a lid off ourselves. but we don't do it on our own. One of the, the practices, and Ricky talked about it this morning, one of the spiritual practices or disciplines of solitude is a really life-changing practice. And here's one of the reasons why. Very often why people don't maintain solitude, this time where it's just them and God, is because when we sit in this place with God, he begins to bring this stuff up. And we start to feel uncomfortable. And then, do you know what we think? We're not doing this right. I thought this solitude thing was supposed to be good for me. I thought this solitude thing was supposed to make me feel better. I thought this, this whole solitude thing was supposed to bring me closer to God. It's just making me angry. I sit with God and I just get angry. Why am I getting angry? Well, why are you getting angry? You ask God. You sit in that moment in the uncomfortable as the lid starts to come off and you ask God, God, why am I angry? What has been done to me in the past? What am I carrying forward into my future? What is it, God? Why am I feeling like this? And as you begin to do that, God begins to tell you. 
So often this happens to me. Um, I really am a broken person and a work in progress, in all seriousness. Because it feels to me like every time I, I settle myself and I sit with God for any length of time, he brings stuff up. I'll sit with him and I'll start. And I, and, and I feel like I've already got an ongoing list I've been going through. I'm 48 this year and I feel like I have 48 years of stuff to work through. But it's in his kindness. He doesn't bring it up to, to condemn me. He doesn't bring it up to make me feel bad. He brings it up because he wants me to be free. He wants me to move on into my future without carrying this stuff with me anymore. So number one, if you want to see it and identify it, you spend time with God. In solitude, in listening prayer, you spend time with him. There is no shortcut to that. There is no shortcut, but it is, honestly, if you take away anything this morning, begin that practice in your life of sitting with God. And when the uncomfortable feelings come, don't think it's, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it 100% right. If you're sitting and you're happy the whole time, you're not lifting the lid off, okay? The second thing, you can Google this. There's a, there's a really useful tool called the Genogram. Now, I confess, I haven't done this yet because I am a wee bit nervous about taking the lid off. I'll be honest on this one. But basically, it helps you go through your family of origin and identify with the Holy Spirit some of the things that you might need to deal with um, as you move forward. The other thing I recommend, and I've recommended it many times from here, behind the microphone, and also personally, one-to-one, -one, with a lot of you, is counselling. Some people resist counselling because, for all sorts of reasons, any type of therapy that can help you deal with stuff in your past, if it's with a recognised person, if you need names, recommendations, speak to me, and I can recommend people that are really good at helping you work through your stuff. Number two, own it. Number one, we're going to look at it, we're going to lift the lid up, off, we're going to identify, and then we're going to own it. We're going to take responsibility for what we find inside. This is not about blaming and blame shifting. This is not about saying, oh, I, I'm angry because that's my, my, my granddad was always angry. It's his fault. Can't nothing I can do about it. I'm just like the Hassans. That's just the way it is. Like I'm just, this is just part of me. I can't do anything about that. No. You own it. You take responsibility. Adam and Eve, after they'd sinned, Adam says something to God straight away. In the first instance, he said, the woman you gave me made me do it. Just pass the buck. Take no responsibility for your sin. Take no responsibility for it. We are to own it and take responsibility for our own stuff. If we want to be set free from our past, then we got to own our stuff. You bring it before God. You repent of it. You ask him to heal you and you break the shame of it and you move on. Finally, the third thing we do is we take it to God and your community and you allow yourself to be reparented. This sounds a bit weird, but it's not. As I said, we are a brand new family of God, right? And we're all works in progress. And we're all trying to work through our own stuff and everything else. But God has created this family of God because he wants us to live a different way. He wants us to show the world that there is a whole other way for us to live. That there's a whole other way to do relationships that he intended right from the very beginning. And he doesn't want you to keep your stuff secret. Because you know what? Secrets have a way of holding a lot of power. And with them usually, 
hold a lot of shame. You see, when we bring things out into the light and we share them with trusted people and our family and our church family, our friends around us, then the power is broken. One of the, the, the biggest ways the enemy will try to keep you locked in your past is he will whisper to you, if only they knew. If only they knew. They would reject you. If only they knew, they would hate you. They would see you differently. That is not what the Father says. And that is not who we are as a family of God, is it? No, when someone comes to us with their brokenness and their past and their sin and their shame, we look them in the eye and we say, we see you. We see you, we hear you, and we're going to walk you through this. And we're going to lead you into health, and we're going to lead you into wellness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Biological family doesn't have to determine your future. You're not a victim, not in the kingdom of God, no matter what has been done to you. You're not powerless. The power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is within you. God can bless your family. He can make you a blessing. Just like he said, we live under the same promise of Abraham, that our family, that we know through the line of Jesus, that our families would be a blessing, that we would be a blessing to nations all over the world, that that's the promise. And we get to break free from the power of our past. And we get to learn together how to be a new family in God. I'm finishing up with Genesis 50. We find Joseph. Abraham's great-grandson's life didn't, turn, didn't radically turn around. He was, after being sold into slavery, he was accused of rape and imprisoned. He was estranged from his family for years. It's interesting that after all the pain and hardship, he now finds himself second in command in the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, Egypt. And in his hand is the power to save or to eradicate his family of origin. It must have been so tempting for him to just let them die. After all they did to him, after all they put him through, but instead we find in Joseph a man who decided not to carry forward the sins of his fathers before him into his new life. Instead he chose another way. Genesis 50, 20 says, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph chose the way of forgiveness. He chose the way of, of somewhere along the line in Egypt, God did a work in Joseph's life. Through all the things that where he was wrongly accused, being sold into slavery, all those things, God did a work in Joseph's life that meant when the time came when he had the choice to bless or curse, he chose blessing. See, sometimes we can get caught up in viewing our pain through our own lens. And the only lens that we can look at is through our own pain and how it affects us. We just keep thinking, oh, this is how this all affects me and all this. But we are called to look at our own pain through God's eyes and ask the question, how does God see my pain? And what does he have to say about it? See, God can use the sin that has been done against us and the sin that has been committed by us for good, for redemption. He turns it around. 
The resurrection of Jesus is doing nothing, is doing the impossible. Like whenever Jesus was rose from the dead, that was the absolute impossible. And what God is saying to you this morning, that even though you might feel locked into your past and you don't feel that you can't even look back at it because you just want to be as far from it as possible, but meantime you're stuck in this place of not moving forward and not being able to look back and you're paralyzed, God is saying, I have made a way through for you. You don't need to live this way. God can take our broken humanity, our messy, complex, sticky lives and our stories and make something beautiful out of it. That is the gospel. That's what he does all the time. To become emotionally healthy, emotionally spiritually healthy, it's a long sentence, we need to trust God with our past so that we can find freedom in our present and our future. We need to look back so we can move forward.